0: Everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today I'm talking with Ashok Modi about his study of the origins, implementation, and consequences of your effort to establish a single currency, entitled Euro Tragedy, a Drama in Nine Acts. Ashok, welcome to the show.
1: Oh, thank you. Thank you, Mark.
0: I was wondering if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself.
1: Uh, so, uh, if I have a, uh, a profession, I'm an economist. Uh, I I did my PhD in economics and then worked at the World Bank and IMF for almost 25 years. So I'm uh, basically an international civil servant. And then about six years ago, in September 2012, I moved to Princeton University's Woodrow Wilson School, where I teach uh, students who are majoring in public policy. And during this period, uh, I have also done some quite extensive writing. Of course, I've written the book, which was my major project. But I'm a frequent uh, commentator on global economic trends, uh, of course, on Europe. But I have also been writing about India. Uh, In which uh, a country in which I maintain my personal interest, being uh, having left India only about when I was in my late 20s. So um, I'm at this point in time uh, a a teacher, a professor, writer.
0: What was it that led you to write this book in particular? Because it is as a befitting your background, a book about economics. But it's also so much more. It's about politics. It's about history. It's about the idea of Europe. What was it that led you to sit down and undertake this project?
1: That's a really nice question. Uh, Thank you for asking me that. Uh, When I started writing it uh, in the fall of 2012, I was going to write a conventional almost if you might say an IMF style analysis of the Eurozone crisis. So for those uh, who may remember, there was the start of a global financial crisis in July, 2007. By my reading, the global financial crisis finished sometime in the middle or the third quarter of 2009, and then the Eurozone crisis started. I was at the, Euros, uh, at the IMF during these years uh, through, the, through the global crisis and then through the bulk of the Eurozone crisis. Uh, and I asked myself, what do I want to do with the rest of my life once I moved to Princeton? And I said, why don't I write a book on the Eurozone crisis? And so the book, as I had planned then, would have been essentially what are now chapters 4 to 8. As I started writing it, I said, this animal that we call the Euro, it doesn't make any sense to me. Where did it come from? What is its origin? And none of the stories that existed on the origins of the Euro at the time satisfied me. So I started borrowing into history, and of course, the moment you get into history, you get into politics. You, you, but more so, in the, more so the politics arose because people said, you cannot look at the Euro purely as an economic project. It was a political project. And I struggled with that phrase, political project. What is the political project? It was, it was a sort of throwaway term that everyone used without defining what the end point there was. And so that's what led me to writing the early parts of the book, which are now chapters one through three. And so that's how I wrote the book. That's how the book came to be what it is rather than what I intended it to be when I started.
0: (laughs) Uh, I'd like to take us back to the uh, the first part of your book because you – in a sense, go back to define that idea of what the euro was as a political project. And it's something that, that that predates the very notion of the European single currency. You take us, the reader, back to the 1950s and the origin of the idea of uh, a single or a more unified European economy. So how did that come about, and how did that lead to the idea of a single currency in the first place?
1: So I begin the book by saying it was a little after 6 p.m. in Paris on May 9, 1950. That's the origin of what we now call the European Union. There was a hurriedly arranged press conference at which the French Foreign Minister Robert Schumann announced that France and Germany would pool their coal and steel industries and that this this pooling under common supervision would begin the first steps of what he said would be a federation of Europe. The journalist asked him, what is this all about? And Schumann did not have very good answers. So the journalist finally, uh, very frustrated, said, is this a leap in the dark? And Schumann said, hmm, yeah, that's what it is, a leap in the dark. <laughs> and so I describe Europe in its early phases as a series of leaps in the dark. The shadow of the war was still very much present. And there was a collective sense that instead of fighting around on 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 battlefields. That it would be good to create conference rooms where Europeans could use their energies, perhaps sometimes in fierce debate, but to build something of a modern Europe in which they could collectively learn to talk to each other and resolve their differences. And that is that is the origin of Europe. The 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 that that, Schuman Declaration led. To something that was called the Treaty of Paris. It, it faded away. It faded away in large part because the coal and steel pooling <laughs> did not really work. There were there was a lot of antagonism between uh, Germany and France. Maybe not a lot, but there were certainly lots of tensions. But the real tension arose because once pooled. And this I I mentioned this very early phase because it almost right away, even when the when the spirit and the goodwill were so great, this tension between national interests and European interests surfaced almost right away. A guy named Jean Monet, Jean Monet is sort of a a, a little bit of a, a mythological figure in European folklore. He he hovers in the background. Uh, he is supposed to be the author of the Schumann Declaration that I just spoke about. And the, 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 the idea itself was John Monet's. And so when, when this uh, entity that pooled the coal and steel industries was constructed, John Monet was put in charge of something called the High Authority, which was supposed to supervise this joint, this joint effort. And Monet soon began to acquire considerable power. And he started uh, in thinking in terms of raising taxes, issuing bonds. He would contact foreign government uh, uh, authorities on his own, independent of the national authorities. And so there was, there was a lot of misgiving in national capitals, particularly amongst the smaller countries. Who is this guy and how? Ha- How come he thinks he is running Europe? And so the time had come to change course, and there was was a second leap in the dark. And that is Europe's most magnificent achievement, the Treaty of Rome. It came from Belgium and and, and the Netherlands. Uh, their, Their governments, their leaders were the promoters as distinct from France and Germany in the first round. And they wanted to open borders to trade. And it was an effort, particularly because Germany and France were opposed to them. Uh, Germany, because Germany wanted to know, the Germans wanted to know why open borders only to to Europeans. Let's open borders to the whole world. The Germans are traditionally much more pro-market than the French. The French did not want to open borders to anyone, including to Europeans. And so there was a tussle and... That tussle anyhow was resolved through something called the Common Agricultural Policy, which has been a drag, uh, which has created huge subsidies for uh, French farmers and therefore for all European farmers. But anyhow, the, the, the Treaty of Rome was constructed, European borders were opened, and there followed a period of many years, 10, 10, 15 years from about 1957 to the late 60s. Where Europe flourished, there was still the post-war momentum was still there. Somewhat, oil trade was doing well. The GDP growth was doing well. The problems were beginning to accumulate, but it was a, it was a generally good period. And that is the moment at which the idea of the euro is begins to be conceived. You describe as you're
0: pointing out, the tension between the European idea, the supranationalism versus the nationalism. But that's just one of the tensions that you describe in your book. Another one is this dance you've already referred to between France and Germany. And one of the things I thought was interesting is how the two intermeshed. how for France and Germany, they sometimes view this idea of Europe through the context of what advances their best national interests. And as you describe in, when you're talking about how uh, France turns to this, it's in a sense, this belief that the supranational project of the, uh, of the, of the Euro as we, as it would come to be called was one that would ultimately bolster France's national standing in, in Europe and the world.
1: Yes, absolutely. There, there is this, there is this famous, uh, Uh, statement by uh, the French President Charles de Gaulle in which he said, yes, more Europe for the glory of France. (laughs) Uh, And and no other French president would have the courage to say that in such uh, blunt words, but every French president has followed that essential policy. Let me just say that the first moment, the, the Schumann Declaration moment in May 1950, may well have also been motivated by a sense that France wanted to take European leadership at that moment. But my, my view of that particular moment is that it was, in fact, a, a, a generous gesture. Uh, Germany was still considered an international pariah. And the French saw it in their interest, and I would say in the European interest, to bring Germany back into the fold. And Konrad uh, Adenauer, who was German Chancellor, jumped at it. And there was a moment where the interests were, I would say, alive. But that there were there there, there are very few such moments in these last seventy years when French and German interests are aligned. As I said, in the Treaty of Rome, they had very different views. And then when we come now to 1969, we have a new French president, uh, George Pompidou. Uh, De Gaulle has just, uh, Gaulle has just uh, left. Um, there's sort of a long story about why De Gaulle left. Uh, And Pompidou's first task is to devalue the uh, French franc. And the French franc devaluation comes after a series of French franc devaluation. The French franc, even during these years of relative European prosperity, the French could never live within their means and because they could not live within their means, uh, they continuously became, their inflation rates were higher than that of, certainly of Germany, but of much of the rest of the world, uh, sort of the advanced world. And therefore, their currency had to keep losing value for them to remain competitive. And the French francs devaluation Became a source of both humiliation and a symbol of French economic inferiority relative to that of Germany. And so every time they they had to devalue, they bristled. They they waited. They 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 would have because they waited. Uh, they would run current account deficits, which is that. Uh, their exports would fall behind their imports, so they would have a large financing gap. Uh, They would have to take uh, unusual measures to try to deal with that. And given all that, an idea began to germinate. What if we had a single currency? If we had a single currency, perhaps, then this notion of the French franc being devalued would not even arise and that a single currency would therefore give the french some leverage both in in claiming equality but perhaps also using that leverage within the country to bring some discipline into their own public finances and perhaps therefore uh gaining not just uh, superficial equality but also some uh, broader more more real equality with germany and that is how that is how my reading of why the french began to pursue uh the single currency idea and so from at that point we have two different themes one is that successive french presidents follow this of Pompidou with exactly the same idea and successive German chancellors, they are not able to say a flat no. They are not able to say go away. They don't like the idea essentially because if the French economic prospects and German economic prospects are very different. If, if countries are diverging in their economic performance, a single currency, which implies a single monetary policy, will not work for, for the two countries. So just think about it. If there, if there are two different countries with very different economic prospects, and you have the same interest rate set by one central bank for both of them, for one, for one economy, the interest rate will be too high for another economy, the interest rate and that fundamental tension then creates an economic uh, an economic dilemma how to how do I have a single currency and manage divergent economies and that that then becomes the source of the political economy battle over the next 30 years within which the euro was finally crafted
0: as you. That's not an insoluble problem. And, and I, I like the reference you made in your book to the United States about how you could view the United States through a similar lens, which is that it is not, I mean, we have one economy, but we also, in another sense, have regional economies. And the way that it's addressed in the United States, for uh, to continue with the example, is with a fiscal policy that provides a degree of redistribution that... Uh, let that leavens out some of the issues that are created by the country having a single this large diverse economy having a single currency.
1: That's exactly correct. And that's that's mm-hmm. the question. Then was would the Europeans be able to achieve that uh, that fiscal pooling, of a, f- a common fiscal budget, a fiscal union? to complement the single currency and that is essentially where the entire tension arises and what is this tension so coming back to your example of the United States the United States did not have a fiscal union till quite late so it did have a single currency the US dollar. But did not have a fed, federal budget large enough to to leaven out the differences across across regions. And the way the the U.S. monetary union pre the New Deal in 1933-1934 was managed was, so to speak, each each country or each region or each state was like a ship that would sink on its to its own bottom in other words if if a state lived beyond its means its creditors would would uh, deal with the default uh, there would be no federal government which did not have the necessary resources to come to the rescue of the state and so you had you had sort of a de facto fiscal union in the sense that the shocks to a region which were were divergent, which differed from another region, were absorbed by the creditors of that state. And that worked up to a point, but when you had the Great Depression, just defaulting on creditors would not work. And so uh, President uh, Roosevelt created an enormous fiscal budget, centralized budget, which transferred something of the order of four percent of three to four percent of American GDP to the states, which meant that the states receiving the money often received 10, 15 percent of their GDP. So there were huge fiscal transfers, and this money then would go into the distressed areas where that, that money was used to revive the local economy. And so the question for the Europeans was, would they do something similar? Would they have a combination of uh, letting creditors bear some losses and where that was not enough, whether they would have fiscal transfers. And the story here is really a very simple one. And this this is one of the Groundhog Day elements of the European story. This story begins with something called the Werner Report, which is where Pierre Werner was the Prime Minister of Luxembourg. And in 1969, when Pompidou first raised this matter of a prospective uh, European uh, European Monetary Union, Pierre Werner was tasked with a, a working group, a committee, which would say, how would a European Monetary Union look like? And within... Within the first few pages of the uh, uh, Werner Report, you see, you see this tension that you have described, which is how are we going to run a, monet, um, um, a so-called monetary union without the fiscal counterpart? And they say, they say two things. They say that the kind of political contract, the political willingness that exists in countries like the United States to transfer resources will eventually will, will eventually uh, uh, that, that the, the political contract will eventually emerge over time and that will create the willingness to transfer fiscal resources. And this became known in the European folklore as a monetarist theory, a monetarist view that let's create the monetary union and a political willingness to support each other through difficult times will emerge by virtue of creating a monetary union. In essence, another mm-hmm. leap in the dark. This is the essential leap in the dark. Exactly. Exactly. This was the French view. The French were so anxious to go ahead that they adopted this leap in the dark. Exactly. The Germans were much more cautious and the Germans kept saying, yeah, maybe, but not now. Yes, maybe, but not now. And so they kept postponing. There were lots of intermediary arrangements which uh, I describe in the book. And then finally, you come to the point in 1989 where the story really picks up. And this is the moment where the Berlin Wall falls and German unification becomes a reality. So in my chapter two, which I call Kohl's Euro, which in, in, by my reckoning is my, is the most innovative chapter of the book, I have sort of a reassessment of why the euro arose. There is a view widely held that the Germans who had been reluctant for nearly 20 years since 1969 uh, suddenly were forced to accept the euro. And that view says that uh, Francois Mitterrand, who was the French president at the time, basically said to a Chancellor Helmut Kohl, the German Chancellor, you want uh, uh, Germany to be unified, you let the euro emerge as a European single currency. In other words, the claim is that Mitron has some leverage over coal uh, to to get coal to exceed to uh, the single currency. And I, I I trace those events with, through in, in great detail and I conclude that there was never such a bargain. There was never such a bargain, either implicitly or certainly not explicitly and not even implicitly. And the the the, the basic reason for that is and there's lots of lots of uh, 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 important reasons but the basic reason is that the euro was not ultimately born in nineteen eighty nine the euro was born if it if it if there is a birth date for the euro it is nineteen ninety one which is the, the signing of the Maastricht treaty but even when the Maastricht treaty was signed immediately after the Maastricht treaty was signed there was a a, a rebellion in to many parts of europe uh, which brings another important uh, theme of the book that up until up until the moment in 1991 the maastricht treaty from the paris treaty that followed the schuman declaration europe had evolved by its leaders gathering together in i guess in those days smoke filled rooms <laughs> and 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 making decisions which then became binding on all europeans and at that moment after the signing of the maastricht treaty there was an a, a, an immediate democratic uh uh upheaval uh, rebellion in in europe It was a peculiar moment, there were lots of things happening, but one of the more important things that was happening at that time was that people suddenly began to realize that with the creation of a single currency, Europe as a supra-nation will reach much deeper into our lives because the supporting policy framework that came with the single currency would require national governments... To follow rules and policies that were dictated by Brussels, Berlin, uh, and eventually Frankfurt when the European Central Bank came into being. And so the first the Danish in a referendum rejected the single currency. And then the French came within a whisker of rejecting it. This is the great irony. That was French presidents for over 20 years who had wanted... uh, the uh, single currency and the French almost rejected uh, the uh, the, uh, the idea of a single currency. And if the French had rejected it at that time, and it could have gone either way at that at that moment, there would have been no single currency. And the the, the theme of my book is that the single currency escapes through an extremely narrow window, uh, because then once the French did approved uh, 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 in the referendum, there were many other shocks. Uh, there was a crisis of a fixed exchange rate system that was supposed to be like the training ground for the euro. That that fixed exchange rate system called the European uh, monetary system had broke down. Uh, Europe, European unemployment was increasing rapidly. The fiscal discipline, fiscal benchmarks set for countries to be qualified to join the Euro were not being met. And there was there was every reason why sometime during the nineteen nineties the Euro as a concept, a single currency would have disappeared. In retrospect it seems as though it was inevitable, but if you if you sort of see it from the Viewpoint of contemporaries at the time, and how they were thinking about it. There was nothing. There was nothing deterministic about this process. And coal becomes important because at each of these critical junctures, where the Euro, Euro nearly died, or the single currency nearly died, coal was the man that kept it going, well beyond the moment of German unification in nineteen eighty nine. And Cole brought this to the finish line in very important meeting uh, in nineteen ninety-eight, the summit where all the leaders met, where they agreed on who would be in the Euro. And there Cole made one last fateful decision, or just prior to the meeting actually, which is that Italy would be part of the original members of the Eurozone. Everybody in the German establishment, everybody was opposed to the idea that Italy should be in the European monetary union. Everybody understood that the Italian political system was deeply corrupt, that the Italians could not live within their means, that the Italian economy, which had had a post-war miracle, had been sputtering, and that Italy was so the economy was so divergent from that of Germany that the idea that Italy and Germany could fit into one monetary union seemed completely absurd to any contemporary observer. And coal, and this is this again, you know, in writing the history, it becomes sort of one has this great dilemma of understanding how much is the history and how much is the man, Cole said, not without Italy, please. This is a phrase that one of his advisors, uh, Bitterlich, uh, uh, attributes to him. And that's how Italy became part of the uh, monetary union. So Cole's role was not just in ensuring that the monetary union emerges, but who would be in the monetary union. And because Italy was in the monetary union, soon we had France, uh, sorry, uh, Spain and Portugal, and eventually Greece. If Italy had not been in the monetary union, those four countries may also well have not been in the, uh, um, those three other countries would also not have been in the monetary union. The European Monetary Union, even if it had existed, would have looked completely different. So that's Cole's role, and that brings us to the moment. Where the the euro then is finally born on January first.
0: It it also is a very interesting moment in in that it shows uh, another dynamic of nationalism at play, which is you have these countries which uh, it, which have this sense of pride of being part of this. Stronger Europe, and the question is: it, it, the question becomes one of, well, does that mean that you then have to be part of the euro? And so you have these countries which are agitating, in a sense, to get into the uh, eurozone as part of that association of identity with, you know, the, this integrating Europe with this stronger Europe. And yet, as you described, especially uh, with the case of Greece, it they they have to be waved in because they really don't have the uh, the stamina, the economic stamina, to really meet with all of the uh, with all the expectations uh, and, and, and pressures that being part of the single union will, will pose upon them, especially without that uh, fiscal transfer policy.
1: No, that's that's a very beautiful phrase. The, the word stamina. The real that is a very very good way of saying it. The question is whether countries like Italy and Greece had the stamina. And the word stamina becomes, I think, completely relevant it is because these countries had poor governance systems. I say poor in the sense, in the relative European sense. I'm not talking about it in an absolute sense. They had relatively weak education systems. They had Therefore, low productivity growth on the whole. Uh, and for them to compete without the benefit of occasional devaluation of their currencies was was very hard. I mean, just for example, Italy, between 1970... In 1999, when it enters the euro, the Italian lira's value fell by over 80 percent relative to the Deutsche Mark. So, Italy needed an enormous devaluation of its currency to remain in an in internationally competitive economy. And now, the same is true for for Greece, and the same is true for Portugal and to a considerable extent also for Spain. You have these countries that, that require the shock absorber of currency devaluation regularly, and now they're being forced into this system in which they cannot use that shock absorber. And therefore, they need the stamina, as in your words to be able to upgrade their governance and productivity mechanisms so that they don't need that credit. And a lot of people still believe that, oh yes, but that was the whole purpose that the single currency would force them to, to do things that they would otherwise not do. It's called the external anchor uh, theory. That the euro would act as an anchor, which would force them to stay disciplined. Uh, the 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 Italians have this phrase, which I'm sure I'm not going to pronounce correctly, but it's vincono esterno, and uh, it's this this is the guiding philosophy of the Italian leadership that if only we had this external discipline imposed on us, we will do better.
0: and so but in the first few years of the introduction of the after the introduction of the euro 1999 things seem to go okay you described that 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 the uh, transition to the euro is is very smooth at at the start Uh, it there is some fluctuation in it but a lot a lot of the worst case scenarios don't really play out at
1: first yeah, the, that is correct. So there were there some, you know, some sort of, uh, the, some of the more terrible scenarios were just of a technical nature. Will there, in fact, will they, in fact, be able to put together a currency uh, which will work technically? Will their conversions occur? All that occurred beautifully. What did begin to manifest very quickly, though, was that Europe was broadly a less dynamic economy. Than uh, than uh, the United States was. Look, I'm not saying that the United States is 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 a paragon of economic performance, but relative to Europe, the uh, U- United States then and United States even now seems to be a much more resilient economy, one that can reinvent itself uh, over periods of time in in ways that. Few European economies, perhaps with the exception of Germany to some extent, but also in limited areas, uh, the the the, the Dutch, uh, the the broad capability of keeping up with the rest of the world uh, is 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 not as strong, not only as compared to the United States, but increasingly then compared to the East Asian nations, which have just sort of leapfrogged uh, the European nations, some of the more dynamic ones, uh, not just Japan initially, but then Korea, Taiwan, and then, of course, this huge, huge juggernaut, uh, China. And the consequence was that the euro began to depreciate but then, what happens is that we have this crisis—the first crisis when the tech bubble burst in 2000, and then you have the uh, uh, 9/11 episode, uh, uh, relatively close uh, in 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 time proximity. The world world trade begins to slow. Anytime world trade begins to slow, the European economies do particularly badly because European nations are trading nations. They depend enormously on world trade. And here is where a new feature of now this new Eurozone entity begins to come into play. What kind of monetary policy will the new European Central Bank have? You have in in, in the United States, the U.S. Federal Reserve under... Chairman Alan Greenspan, Greenspan begins to notice that the US economy post the tech bubble burst and the 9-11 attacks, even, even after the tech bubble burst, before the 9-11 attacks, is like a, a man who is falling from the 30th floor, and he's passing the 10th floor, but he's still blissfully ignorant of the fate that awaits him and that that's the time to create a safety net, not when you hit the ground. This is what I describe as the risk management principle. And despite all their sort of bumbling and all their chaotic governance process in the United States, the U.S. does a much better job, especially the Federal Reserve in, in, in risk management. The Europe, European Central Bank consciously set at the very start a presumption that it would not do so, that it would it it would always act late and in half measures. And the question that puzzled me and and others who have thought about this, not many have sort of focused too much on this, but it's a pattern that repeats itself in 2007 to 9 when the global financial crisis occurs and then again when the European crisis occurs that the European Central Bank always reacts late and in half measures and that is a very important economic effect one is that it delays the recovery and you might say well the, the delay of the recovery is is, is bad, but is it so terrible because then you can catch up? And the answer is you don't catch up. And this is what economists call the hysteresis effect, what I call the policy wounds leaving scars. So the scars that are left because of delayed recovery are, are higher unemployment, uh, workers losing some skills, uh, postponement of investment, and that ha- has not only an effect of a short-term nature, but has a longer-term effect. And so the euro not only had its more mega problems, of the kind that we talked about, about uh, the sort of fiscal transfers uh, uh, not being an option, it also then started to create these policy problems where uh, delays... Uh, in in mo- the application of monetary policy would cause hysteresis. And at the same time, the fiscal rules that were put in place as a substitute for fiscal transfers required austerity, austerity to a greater extent, again, than in the United States. And so a combination of relatively niggardly monetary policy and fiscal austerity meant... That every time Europe had a crisis, its recovery was more painful, which left longer term scars. Those scars have accumulated. And so not only did we not have this external anchor uh, phenomenon creating a revival in these economies, these economies in your in your very uh, uh, nice word did not have the stamina, but On top of that, the policy structure added to their problems in dealing with their crisis
0: in that sense 2001 serves as a uh, a warning for what's going to take place in 2008 i was wondering if you could explain what happens in 2008 and and how the euro and and the and the very idea of the single currency exacerbates that problem especially as you described for the countries of ireland and greece
1: so the that's the first phase so what ha- what happens is between 2004 to 2007. The world has a rare moment of extraordinary growth. It's it's considered a moment, uh, the, sort of the Goldilocks moment, where growth is high, unemployment is low, inflation is relatively moderate. But as we now know, certainly in retrospect, uh, there were many who were pointing it out at the time, that behind this sort of very benign sense of the world economy, lots of imbalances were building up. And in the Eurozone, those imbalances were of two kinds, one in Spain and and Ireland, where just like in uh, Florida and Nevada, in the United States, there was a huge real estate boom going on. And that real estate boom was being fed by by huge amounts of credit. A lot of that credit was coming from German and French banks into Spanish and to a lesser extent into Irish banks, which were more self-financed and borrowed from international capital markets more broadly. And so that international capital flow came in, uh, fueled the property growth and you know, whenever you are in the middle of of such irrational exuberance, as uh, there's the Yale uh, Nobel laureate uh, Robert Schiller says, people believe that this time is different. Mm-hmm. Yet th- this phenomenon uh, of uh, Spain and Ireland in uh, at one end, Greece was a little bit of this same kind, which is. Greece also had something of a, a mini real estate bubble, but Greece's bigger problem was that the government was running large fiscal deficits, living beyond its means. The IMF would periodically warn that this, this cannot go on, they need to tighten their belts. And then you had Portugal and Italy, which just fell, fell into a stupor. They They did not grow they not only did they not have stamina, they basically just rolled over and 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 just the the economies stopped essentially stopped growing their productivity growth fell to zero and there was barely any gdp growth so you had these sort of four, five uh, five different countries uh, Ireland and Spain at one extreme, Portugal and and uh, Italy at the other, uh, in a different, uh, more in a growth crisis, and then you had Greece sort of somewhere in between. And that's the moment when the global crisis hits. Initially, when the global crisis hit, there was not much differentiation across countries. It was not yet immediately obvious to Europeans that that this is affecting countries differently the only country that did get somewhat more singled out in the beginning was ireland but again it, it seemed like you know yeah it's a problem but the irish have grown up they'll, they'll they'll take care of themselves the initial focus was on european central bank monetary policy uh okay, will the european central bank create a monetary policy, reduce interest rates rapidly to help generate growth more broadly throughout the Eurozone. And here, the sort of stark difference between the Federal Reserve and the European Central Bank, some glimpse of which we saw in 2001, now appears in a gross form. The uh, uh, Federal Reserve reduces its rates rapidly and not only does the European Central Bank not do so, its first action after the crisis starts in July 2007 is to raise interest rates in July 2008. Remember what was happening was there was this boom that was occurring between 2004 to seven, So there was some after effect in terms of inflation. And the Central Bank was just focused purely on inflation rather than on the fact that growth was slowing down. And could likely collapse, which would bring inflation down. Therefore, they need not worry about inflation and worry a lot more about reviving growth, as the Federal Reserve clearly was doing. And so, you have a you have a delayed recovery in the United in, in the eurozone relative to uh, the Federal Reserve. And you have this other big problem that the European eurozone has this extraordinary number of banks. And the banks were suffering to more or less degrees in different countries. The Americans, again, in their own way, took care of the banks through what is called the top the Troubled Asset Relief Program, which gave them the, uh, the financial resources to recapitalize the banks so that they had some financial cushion. The Europeans were never able to get their act together in the same way. Uh, there were efforts. I'm not saying there were no efforts. There were efforts, especially in Germany, which is a rich country, which managed its own banks. But this is where the troubles really began for Ireland and Spain, and then they started spilling over to other. You have a dynamic
0: in Europe that is different from the United States, which is that when this crisis unfolds, you start to see these national interests diverging in very dramatic ways, to the point where you start to see people for the first time talking about one of the member countries pulling out of the euro. In this case, Greece, and so we have that dynamic uh, developing again of how nationalism comes into play and how it can tributes to these tensions that you describe in terms of how to deal with the Euro project and how the response to these tensions, which as you describe, you know, play into this broader idea of a, of a supranational Europe. It really, or transnational Europe really uh, influence how these policymakers are dealing with what are essentially still these economic concerns. Yeah. So,
1: so Greece Let's let's uh, talk about Greece for a second. Greece is where the Europeans first confront the implausibility of the euro. Up until up until Greece, the view was we are doing fine. What's the problem? Uh, we've got the central bank; it functions well. There's no real eurozone problem. But then, when Greece comes along, In October of 2009, says that we were fudging our fiscal numbers, our fiscal deficits are much larger than we we claimed that they were, our debt is much larger. The initial reaction is Greek problem, Greeks will take care of themselves. This is the exact, this is the essential corollary to what we just discussed no fiscal transfer system. And the reason there is no fiscal transfer system, in fact, now becomes even more. Uh, it, the justification of that becomes even more uh, pronounced because, look, if we did have this system, we would be paying for these Greeks who have lived these uh, all these wasteful years and thrown away their money, and we would be paying their bills, which certainly we don't want to do. And so the the reaction between October two thousand and nine and March of two thousand and ten is Greek problem will go away. So this is what I call delays and half measures. So now you have the delays and half measures transferred to Greece, not just from the cent not just in the central bank policy, but more broadly. This sort of comes has a theme over here is that because you don't have a common commonly agreed Political contract within which decisions are taken. There is no accountability, and the lack of accountability therefore causes these delays and half measures. Because at the point a decision is needed, crucially in a timely way, there are these different interest groups that are fighting, and and therefore the net, net result is this so, a sort of war of attrition. Everyone wants to. Who does not immediately benefit or who benefits less has an interest in delaying the decision. And the Germans did not want to do uh, to lay out any money for Greece. The Chancellor Merkel, who for the first time now appears on the European scene as an important European actor, is becomes de facto the European Chancellor at that point. Uh, and she begins to guide Europe's destiny from, I would say, December ninth, two thousand and nine, to uh, to about two thousand and fourteen. During those crisis years, it's all Chancellor Merkel. <laughs> no accountability. No democratic responsibility because Merkel is is vetoing, has veto authority over all major decisions, even though she's been elected only by the German people, and the necessary corollary that she will take actions only when absolutely necessary, and to the minimum extent necessary to prevent the breakdown of the Eurozone. Merkel did decide that breakdown of the Eurozone was not in the German interest. Because if if a country exited from the euro, uh, that car- country's currency would would be quickly devalued. Perhaps to a large extent, that country would still have or will still would still owe debt denominated in euros. With the depreciated national currency, would not be able to repay those debts. They would default, which would lead their creditors to start defaulting and there might be cascading defaults through the system which would have untold effects and so and and so if, if once greece left would, portugal would have be forced out by speculators and the system would unravel very quickly and therefore she made a conscious policy decision on two different occasions that she was not going to let greece exit it was a no- a lot of talk about a lot of noise, but my reading of the history is that the one person who was steadfastly against uh, Greek Greek exit, despite what her finance minister Wolfgang Schäuble may have said in public, Merkel opposed it, and because Merkel opposed it, it was never going to happen. And so you you have now got this tension that... There cannot be an exit. They have to live within the system, and how are we going to manage it? And the the consequence is this this enormous austerity that is imposed on on the Greeks. Uh, there's another corollary decision whose origins are, are 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 much more complex than the other option that the Greeks did have, which is the option that I described of how the European Monetary Union worked before the new deal, which is to let the states default. The option was to let Greece default on its creditors. If Greece had defaulted on its creditors, uh, its debt burden would have fallen substantially, the need for austerity would have been much less, The, uh, the ability to recover from the crisis would have been better. The counter to that is that, oh, well, if Greece had defaulted, there would have been a wildfire contagion that that would have swallowed the entire global financial system, much in the same way as happened after Lehman Brothers. I look at the evidence, and there's simply no evidence <clears throat> that a Greek default would have created Lehman-like a contagion. It was a made-up story. It was essentially an ECB story that everybody bought into. Uh, the ECB was worried about the effects it would have on some of the banks in the, Europe, in, the, in, the Europe, in the Eurozone. And Jean-Claude Trichet, the president, was insistent. So Greece did not have the option of defaulting on its creditors. It did not have fiscal transfers. It had a huge uh, austerity program as a result. And therefore fell into an economic depression, the likes of which the world has not seen since the Great Depression. And the rest is history in terms of Greece being today a nation <coughs> that is that is is becoming old and, and 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 is slowly sliding into a low growth trap uh, of of um, of a very bleak. Long-term prospects. And Greece is not the
0: only country of which this is true, because you move from Greece to talking about what's going on with Italy, and this is one that brings us uh, pretty much to the present day, where you're seeing how Greece is not is is less the outlier and more of the canary in the coal mine for a lot of what these. Uh, these smaller countries who were so eager to join the euro at at the end of the twentieth century are now facing in terms of the uh at the end of the this decade and going into the twenty twenties
1: again yeah yeah you 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 i i i feel so happy you read my book very uh very well it is very much the canary in the mine and the 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 big difference is size. Uh, Greek uh, debt uh, uh, is approximately one eighth the size of, of, of Italy's debt, government debt. Um, Italian debt is a public debt is about the same size as German public debt, same size as French public debt. Italian banks' assets are in the same neighborhood as German and French bank assets. The Eurozone found it hard enough to manage the Greek crisis. If there's an Italy crisis, I don't see how the Eurozone will be able to uh, possibly withstand that crisis. And the the Italian story is a much more grievous story because Italy has not grown for 20 years. A, 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 A proposition I make in the book is that ultimately debt crises are not about debt; they are about growth. If if I'm growing rapidly, I can pay my debt. So when when I first bought my bought my first house, I was really concerned: will I be able to pay the mortgage? And one of my father's friends uh, laughed and said to me, "Don't worry. Uh, with the kinds of raises you're going to get at the World Bank, you'll surely be able to repay the." Uh, Uh, manage your mortgage much better. And so, yes, it did turn out that I did fine. But that is because I had some expectation that my income would grow. Uh, But if your income does not grow, your debt becomes a burden. And that's that's the core problem for Italy. Italy does not grow. Italy has not grown for a generation.
0: How does the euro (laughs) exacerbate this? Uh, and how uh, does and how does the euro in that sense pose this problem for all these small nations, more generally, both in the present and going forward?
1: So uh, the exacerbation occurs in in I think three different ways. One is that if the if Italy was not in the euro. Uh, in not in the eurozone, and this is a very this this, this is a, a debatable question. So let me give you my view, and then I will give you a, a view that some others might espouse, just to be sure that you know I'm not just uh, biasing this conversation. Italy had lived between 1970 and 1999, as I said, by depreciating its currency. And what 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 currency depreciation does? is it does not solve your problem because what current, when you depreciate your currency you are becoming poorer because you are now selling your goods at a cheaper price and you are buying from the rest of the world at more inflated prices and so you are becoming poorer but what the what the exchange rate depreciation does is at at at, at every stage as you become less competitive it 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 gradually makes you poorer. If you cannot depreciate your currency for 20 years, that, that lack of competitiveness just gets bottled up. And so that bottling up has, it has to be contained somehow, and it's contained in a much more uh, uh, attrition-like process within the country where wages go down, unemployment remains high, and... These sort of social tensions build up. Uh, the uh, public finances become worse, and so you have this—you have this uh, bound. Uh, you're bound into the system from which you cannot escape, but which does not give you any relief. The second is the delays in monetary policy decisions that I spoke about become particularly acute for Italy in 2013 and 14. This is the moment when, by when the United States, not only having the Federal Reserve, not only having depreciated, uh, lowered its interest rate and embarked on what is called the quantitative easing program, which is the program by which the Federal Reserve bought uh, US government bonds to lower long-term bond yields, which brought down mortgage rates, which brought down other long-term interest rates. And therefore, also helped stimulate the economy. The, the uh, ECB did not do that, and 2013 and 14 the ECB monetary policy remained relatively lukewarm at a time when the eurozone economy, in general, particularly the econ- Italian economy, was in a near recession. <laughs> so you have an inability to depreciate the exchange rate. You have no monetary policy breathing room, and the ideology of the eurozone enforced a deep fiscal austerity. So, on all three grounds, uh, the Italian economy just contracted relentlessly during these three uh, the, during these three years, more or less from mid two thousand and twelve to mid two uh, thousand mid-2011 to mid-2014. Now, there is an alternative view. The alternative view as well, um, if the Italians had not been in the Eurozone, their fall would have been even steeper. The the Italians are, are just so incapable of handling themselves that despite all the liabilities imposed by the Eurozone, they would have done even worse. We don't know that. We don't know if that is true. Uh, we, I certainly think that the liabilities imposed by the Eurozone are, are, are significant. Uh, and therefore, uh, you would have to really do poorly to uh, have done even worse. But more importantly, and this comes to your observation, if the Italians had done worse with their own currency, it would have been their problem. Now, to the extent Italy walks into a crisis, that is, as it imminently seems to be doing, it will become a eurozone problem, and so it will. It will not. It will become a problem of such vast financial consequences for the eurozone and therefore potentially for the world that by by tying uh, Italy into the eurozone, not only has the eurozone. Damaged the long-term prospects of Italian growth, but it has created, in essence, a monster which they cannot tame anymore.
0: Now, you, uh, as I think you've uh, you know made clear in the book and 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 also uh, in our interview, you're very critical of the whole eurozone project, and yet you make it. you state uh, very bluntly at the beginning of your book that you're writing it from a pro-European perspective. So what do you think Europe should do going forward, both in terms of dealing with this and also in terms of maintaining the idea of this this pan-European ideal, which was really at the heart of so much of of what uh, has underlay uh, European economic integration?
1: So... uh I end the book with two thoughts Uh, on the Eurozone itself. I think the best we can do is to make something out of a bad situation. The Euro will never function in a way that is uh, efficient, helpful. The question is how can we make it least inefficient, least unhelpful? And I say that number one, there should be a much clearer set of uh, uh, policies and contractual mechanisms such that if a country lives beyond its means, its creditors bear the burden or share a material burden so that the need for pooled fiscal resources is minimized. It will not get us every uh, uh, all the way, but it will make a material difference. <laughs> The second is the fiscal rules that the Europeans have imposed, which create a presumption of extraordinary austerity at, at exactly the wrong moments. Those rules must be must be let go. There is no need for those rules, especially when you have a system that allows and encourages, in fact, default on creditors, let creditors to nations be the guardians of fiscal discipline rather than somebody sitting in Brussels and and juggling numbers on a spreadsheet. And the third is that the European Central Bank should give much greater weight to unemployment uh, in may- reaching its monetary policy decision uh, as distinct from only price stability, which excessive price stability focus Creates again a, a deep austerity bias austerity now monetary austerity bias into the system which again delays and prolongs recover uh, delays recoveries and prolongs uh, the delays the recovery and and prolongs the uh, period over which the expansion occurs. These are these are technical fixes which I think will help. I don't think the political will exists to do any of these because the group thing that has caused the Euro has also led to these being almost uh, uh, inviolate sense of identity of the Eurozone and austerity is a good thing. There's a broader, more pro-European view that I espouse. And that is, what is Europe about? Is it about Euro? Is it about economic material well-being? What is the fundamental, what is the fundamental thing that brings Europeans together? What is it that brought them together in, in, in 1950? And I say that what, what really brings Europeans together and which held them together for the first 20 years of the European project was not just the desire for peace, but was a common set of values of equality, justice, and open society in which there was a freedom of thought, expression, and accommodation of diversity. And what the Euro does is that it negates all those principles. It, it 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 forces a rigidity it 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 emphasizes economic materialism over these values it pits nations against nations and so instead of creating equality some nations become more equal than others as as the sort of perpetual uh, tension between Germany and Italy now shows hmm. and that while as long as the euro exists, those tensions will never go away, that the bigger task for Europe today is to, within the constraints of the system, be as close to the conditions for an open society as possible. And I say that the big route to that, and I have this fanciful speech at the end, which I imagine Chancellor Merkel delivering, which I call Merkel's exit monologue, which creates a a huge investment in education throughout Europe. And I say Europe education is thrice blessed. Education is the one correlate of growth that has been consistently productive since the Industrial Revolution. Education is the one source that creates equality amongst people. Today, a lot of the tensions that we are seeing in Europe because many are feeling left behind only way to create mobility across generations so that a waitress's daughter does not feel condemned that she's going to be a waitress is through creating uh, much better opportunities to education you see that in Finland excellent education system huge upward mobility and third is that education will create modern what I call Greek agoras, again, sort of a a reference to a classical European theme where agoras are meeting places. Universities and schools become meeting places for discussions, debates, on a scale that creates a sense of European oneness and unity. And so if there is one priority, overriding priority that Europe should have, not just for material well-being, but also to create a sense of European unity. It is a massive round of educa- education investment because that's the only way Europe is going to keep up in any case. You look at the East Asian nations. they have raced ahead in terms of education, R&D, uh, patenting. And if Europe wants to survive as an economic uh, uh, entity, it has to catch up in any case. But it will also deliver the dual benefits of equality and a sense of European unity.
0: Well, we've taken up a lot of your time. But before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now?
1: <laughs> <laughs> so I'm having a hard time. I, if, if, if my heart allowed, and uh, I would write a book on India. Uh, my sorry, my heart certainly wants to write a book on India, if my if my circumstances allowed. And I'm, I'm being told by some friends that I need to now start thinking of a different phase of life and doing other things uh, that are more inward oriented looking. Um, but yes, if I have one last passion left, it is trying to understand why India never fulfills its promise? Why Indian, India continues to go from promise to hubris? Why is it that India, which manages the world's largest democracy, a democracy that is at one level vibrant, why has it become so corrosive? Why, why is the collective action problem in India so severe? Why can't Indians provide water? Urban living spaces, again, education in a way that creates both equality and justice. So, it's some of the same themes, if you will, but in a different context, trying to understand how Indian democracy creates both material progress as well as social justice.
0: Well, I hope you have the opportunity to write such a book because it sounds like it's a subject very close to your heart. (laughs) <laughs> thank you. Sakabodi, <laughs> uh, uh, thank you very much for taking some time to speak with us today. I hope you have a wonderful day.
1: Thank you very much, Mark. It was a pleasure, great pleasure.